Hi, this is the official podcast of Riverside International Church in Lisbon. Riverside is an international, contemporary, caring, and Christ-centered community. Our vision is to significantly impact the country of Portugal and the regions beyond with the gospel. Thank you for listening to us, and we hope that your life will be impacted by these teachings. God bless. We are closing our message series, Everyday Disciples. Um, and I hope that these uh, last four weeks and today are both inspiring and challenging to the way that we are following Jesus. And as th for this last topic, God really put in my heart this beautiful team that is a very important piece of what it means to be an everyday disciple, an everyday follower of Jesus. And this word is unity, unity, everyday unity. So what is unity? And here are some words that help us describe what unity is, harmony, oneness, solidarity, togetherness, peace, integrity, agreement, like-mindedness. These are some of the words that help us to understand what is unity according to the Word of God. And let me just give you a few examples so that we fully embrace and understand when the Bible talks about unity, what it really means. So in the book of Genesis chapter 2, we see the first example of what unity means. When God brought together a man and a woman, creating this form of unity that is called marriage. And it says in Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it was God's purpose, and it was God who established that as human beings, our identity is not defined just by the self, but by unity and the way that we live together in unity. Another example in Exodus 24, we read that Moses had just finished telling the people of Israel all the law that they were meant to follow. And the Bible says in Exodus 24, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. All the people, everyone came together with one voice, like-mindedness, the same purpose, And it's exactly this kind of behavior, it's exactly this kind of example that the Bible is encouraged us to understand and to live out unity. And throughout the Old Testament, we only have glimpses of what unity really means, of the kind of unity that God designed us to experience as human beings. And it was only later, around 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ came to earth, that God's perfect plan of unity was fully revealed to us. And we're going to read this passage, very well-known passage in John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. Doris, can you read for us? That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, in, be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Thank you. We see this very beautiful picture of Jesus praying for us, 
praying for the church. And God's plan is that all believers in Jesus Christ, they become one. That is the plan. That is the purpose that God revealed. And then Jesus details the kind of unity he wants to see happening in us. And then he goes into this doctrine that we know, the doctrine of the Trinity, that uh, is actually foundational to the Christian faith. Uh, the, the Bible shows us clearly that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is one in essence. He is one, but he exists in three persons. Now, in many ways, this doctrine is still a mystery, and I'm not going to unfold the doctrine of the Trinity. It is still a mystery to our minds, for sure. But it's the most beautiful example of unity that Jesus could have shared with us. Because this unity that exists in the oneness of God, exactly the unity that, is, that these three persons have as one God, is the kind of unity that Jesus wants to be expressed in his church. This is challenging to us, but it's uh, equally amazing and wonderful. So let's just unfold in this passage just four aspects of the unity that Jesus wants us to live out. First, unity is being one in God. He is saying that they may also be one in us. Unity is not in restrained acceptance of all kinds of behavior within a group. That doesn't work. That is the kind of unity that the world promotes, but it's impossible. Just in the same way that we cannot accept both justice and injustice at the same time. We want justice. We do not want injustice. So just as these two terms, these two notions cannot coexist, it's impossible for within a group we accept all kinds of behaviors. So the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for us to have is that we might be one in God, which is a different thing. Being one in God means that God is the essence of our unity. He is the indispensable quality of our togetherness. Only in him we know what unity, what love, what freedom, what grace, what peace truly is. And because of that, we need to be one in God. Secondly, unity is a reflection of God's glory. And we already preached in these past months a lot about glory. And I like this definition from John Piper. Glory is the radiance of God's perfection. When the church is living as one, we are going public on how beautiful, how amazing, how loving God truly is. We are communicating to the world. We are communicating to everyone in a very visible way all the attributes, all the qualities of our invisible God. And that's how the church is a reflection of God's glory when we live in unity. Thirdly, unity is a work in progress. Jesus said they may be made perfect in one. It would be amazing if we were already perfect, but God is already perfect. God is one. God is a perfect unity, but we are not quite there yet. God is still working unity in us. And we just have to be open. We just have to embrace the vision, the goal that Jesus has set for his church. 
that we will be able to live out in this unity because God is going to work in our hearts. Not through coercion, not through fear, but by his beautiful and amazing love. And finally, Jesus is also saying that unity is helping the world to believe in Jesus. When we are one, the people around us will uh, more easily understand who Jesus Christ is and why did he came to this world. Now, of course, obviously words will be needed, but Jesus is saying that the example that we live as his disciples living in everyday unity is helping the world to fully understand and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a beautiful example. And now, I know this is very theological, and many of you haven't had coffee or at least enough coffee this morning. But let's be very practical on what this means. If Jesus prayed for unity, and we don't know many of the things that Jesus prayed for, but we know for sure that Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. Is this actually priority to us? How are we praying for the church to be one in Christ? This is something that every community, not just here at Riverside, every community needs to pray for and needs to grow in. And some of us might struggle with the concept of church. At some point, I believe in our Christian lives, we have struggled, why do I need a church? Why do I need to go to a church? Why do I need to have fellowship or relationship with people that I don't really like that much? But I believe this happens because we didn't fully experience what unity is. And listen to this. For us to fully embrace and understand unity, first we have to give ourselves fully to God. We will not be able to understand what unity is if we are still keeping God away of certain areas of our lives. Unity comes when we first are one in God. When we allow God to be the one who defines us, the one that takes over our lives, and only then we will be able to give ourselves to others. It doesn't happen the other way around. So the question for you this morning is, have you given yourself fully to God? Have you already accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And are you walking with God and allow him to be Lord of all the areas of your life? And if you have, then you will be able to accept others as you have been accepted in Christ. Then you will be able to experience the kind of unity that is beautiful, that is deep, that is spiritual, that actually defines your identity. Identity is not just about the self. It's about the unity that God created you to experience. So how do we give ourselves fully to God in order to live in this unity? How should we live in unity? And this is what I'm going to be focusing on for the rest of the message. We're going to explore three elements that we find in the Word of God uh, that define the unity of the church, things that we need to do on the practical level. So let's be practical. We've understood the theological concept of unity. We've seen how God wishes for the church to be one in him. We understand that this is 
probably one of the most beautiful experiences that we can ever have in life. But how can we do it on a practical level? So we're going to use these three elements to explain and be practical on how we live in unity. First is identity. Second is purpose. And thirdly is holiness. And let's start focusing on identity. And for that, we're going to read this passage that has inspired our message series in, in Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 to 8. Uh, Chris, can you read for us? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith, faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesizing, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give your generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Man, he has an amazing voice, doesn't he? Can you give him a round of applause? He did an awesome job. Thank you so much. So this passage that we've read, and it's the base uh, for our message series, it talks about actually the elements that we need to live out in unity. And I want us to focus in this passage that it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, I look at this verse immediately, and I think this verse is out of context. If he's talking about this beautiful thing that we are living, God is renewing us, why is Paul talking about the way that we think of ourselves? Because this is actually really important. Because in order for us to live in unity, we have to accept and embrace our new identity in Christ. Now, in order for us to live out in unity, we need to see ourselves as we truly are. How many of you know what a carnival mirror is or a funhouse mirror? How many of you? I have an example here. I know it's a, a, lit, a little small, but we've all been to places or a shopping center or a funhouse that has these kinds of mirrors. And they're really funny, right? Because we, we can be 
really thin and we look like we've uh, ate an elephant. It's it, because exactly that's what a mirror does. A mirror should exactly um, allow ourselves to see how we truly are. But the reality is every single mirror on earth is imperfect. In a, in, in a very subtle way, even if you go to a shopping center or on a clothes store, just take notice of this. The mirrors that you see in the, when you try in the little rooms, the, the changing rooms, they're not the kind of mirrors that you have at home. Those mirrors make you look slim. They make the, the, the clothes look really amazing on you because they know the way that we see the reflection, it will um, make the way that we uh, make our shopping decisions happen. So it is important for us to understand that the way that we see ourselves on earth will always be incredibly biased. We do not, we cannot understand for ourselves and, and think of ourselves as who we truly are. And the Bible says that we need God for that. In order for us to live out in unity, we need to start looking at ourselves, thinking about ourselves the same way that God looks at us. So the the idea that Paul is, is transmitting to us is that we first need to fully embrace the identity that we have received in Jesus Christ by faith. So who are we in Christ? And let me give you a few examples. In Christ, I am greatly loved by God. In Christ, I am redeemed through the blood of Christ. In Christ, I am born again, spiritually transformed through the living and everlasting word of God. In Christ, I am free from the law of sin and death. I am born of God, and the evil does not touch me. I am holy and without blame before him in love. I have everything I need to live a godly life, and I'm equipped to live in his divine nature. I belong to God. My body is a temple of a, the Holy Spirit. And these are just a few examples of who God says I am. And this be, needs to become my identity. And many times I see Christians struggling with their identity. I see Christians struggling in their lives because they act and they behave at not as children of God. They act, and sorry for giving you our, your names, Chris, as Carolyn, as Doris. We live in our identities and we fully embrace and accept who we are. And we forget that we are all of these names, we are these people, but something has changed in us because we became in Christ. It's no longer Reuben, but it's Reuben in Christ. It's no longer Jamil, but Jamil in Christ. And if you don't know what that means, you have to go into the Word of God and fully understand the power of the person of Jesus Christ that he gave his life so that we could embrace this new identity. So when we face the problems in our lives, when we face the challenges, when we do not know what's going to happen next, I can be fully assured that I am in Christ. And I want my faith to be lived out this way. We are not designed to be alone. Why is this important for us to live in unity? Because if we are all in Christ, there will be no difference between us. We are all loved by God. 
We are all forgiven. We are all the new creation. We are all equipped to live a godly life. We are all one in Christ. And that's what, that, this is what will allow us to live the unity that God designed. Is this the way that you think of yourself when you look to a mirror? Is this who you recognize when you look to your life? Yes, I'm maybe all of this. I'm flawed. I have virtues. I have some really bad traits as well. But I am in Christ. Christ defines who I am. My identity is found in Christ. And believe me, church, if we are all in Christ, we will all live in the unity that God designed us to live. Secondly, also in this passage, we see Paul talking about the example of the gifts, the example of the body, because we live in unity by accepting and embracing our new purpose given to us in Christ. And he gives us this example of the body. One body has several members. Every member has a different function. Every member belongs to one another. It doesn't make any sense to have a member on its own. The member needs to be in the body and needs the help of the other members in order to be part of a body. And for this reason, the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. And Paul explains this concept even in more detail in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 to 31. Gabby. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. Amen. So you, you see that every member in the body of Christ has a different gift. We have different purposes in the body. We're not all the same. God did not design us to all experience the same things, to be useful in the same ways. We don't share all the same gifts. He placed people in the church and he gave them different gifts, different purposes to perform now, this may lead us to think that since God already established who we are, he already gave the gift, so it means that this is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life because what God decides is decided. But actually, I love this last verse, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And this verse, I really believe, like all the Bible, it really comes from the heart of God. So that we understand that God wants us to cooperate with him regarding the functions in the body. Yes, it is still God who gives us the gifts. Yes, it's still God who empowers us for ministry. But he also wants to see people desiring earnestly to be useful to God. It's not just sitting around and accepting, yes, I have a gift and I'm going to do my thing. That's not what matters. What God is looking for, people who desire to be useful in God's kingdom. People who desire the best gifts. Best gifts, it doesn't mean that there are gifts that are better than others. 
It just means that I want to be useful in the best way in the kingdom of God. It means that if I see a need, I want to pray. I need to accept God. Use me for your glory. I know that I'm not an evangelist, but God, fill me with your spirit so I can teach others about you. Lord, I'm not that hospitable, but Lord, just pour so much love in my heart that I'm going to be so welcoming to everyone around me. Lord, I don't know how to pray, but Lord, fill me with your spirit so I can Teach me how to pray. Fill me with you. It's when we desire the best gifts, when we desire to be useful in God, that we will experience the unity of the church. Unity is not, okay, I'm the pastor, Jamil's worship leader, uh, Yannick plays the bass, and Doris plays piano. That's all. Thank you, everyone. The body of Christ is an organism. It's not an organization. We are there for one another. God has placed us in the body in order to be useful. I may not be the best counselor, but if, if I see one of you, if I see Yannick just in sorrow, just in pain, God has called me and empowered me to be there for Yannick and show him love and sustain him in prayer. That's who God designed us to be. We need to desire to be used by God, empowered by him to be useful in God's kingdom. As my wife usually says, the ability comes after the availability. We have to be available in order to receive the ability. Now I'm earning so many points from quoting my wife. You have no idea how great this is going to be. And as a church, we want to help you understand what are the gifts that God has given you. And it's a a beautiful thing that we can do it as part of the body of Christ. But unity is also showed in this desire that we have to be useful to God and his kingdom. So how are you available for God to empower you and use your life? How are you being uh, active in the body of Christ? How are you sensible to the needs that are around you and are willing to pray this prayer? God, I know that I'm not all of this and all of that. But here I am, Lord, use me as you wish, as you desire. We need to desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit and not just relying on our natural traits. And when we do so, we are building the kingdom of God. We are experiencing the unity that Jesus prayed for his church. And Paul is saying that we are the body of Christ. Lastly, we spoke about identity. We spoke about purpose. And there is the final word that, um, that we also, that my wife preached about, Gabby preached about holiness. But everything go, comes back to holiness. And we need that. We live in unity by striving for holiness. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a very beautiful verse, right? I don't think we preach so much about the verses like this one. Let's read it again. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, Perfecting holiness in the fear 
of God. Now, one of the things that we learn about holiness already is that it, holiness is an attribute of God. We become holy as we are connected to God. God accepted us, and his holiness comes to be in us. God makes us holy. But not only that, holiness is also about us co cooperating with God, being with God, and work out our holiness. We need to choose to be holy as well. That's why we have this challenge. Cleanse yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. This is our side of the responsibility regarding holiness. Why? Why is holiness important to unity? Because whether obvious or hidden, any sin injures the church. Any sin. Obvious sins are easier to spot and easier to confront, like stealing or adultery, for example. But hidden sins might be less noticeable, but they are equally harmful to the body of Christ. A few examples, gossip, envy, pride, hate, lust. Those are things that we don't do on a Sunday morning when we come to church. So it's very easy for us to look holy and try to be holy, at least when we are in the body um, of Christ, when we are with other believers. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Can I hear an ouch this morning? I'll, t I'll say it for you, ouch. There is nothing that is going on in our lives that will not be revealed, that will go on forever without being known. And the Bible tells us these things, as uncomfortable as these things are, but he tells us this because we need to understand that believers are capable of sinning. We are capable of sin. And any Christian can find himself trapped in sin. And it can be due to ignorance, but it can also be just plain disobedience to God. And when we sin, and we know this from the Word of God, when a believer sins, we must repent. That's the action that comes naturally. And that's the action that the Holy Spirit wants to see in our hearts. We must repent and receive the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus. The Bible says if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are able, if we are willing to confess our sins, if we recognize that our behavior is not a behavior that honors God, if we confess it with our mouths, the Bible says that we are in the perfect position to receive the forgiveness and the righteousness that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the plan from the beginning. And this seems very simple, right? We all do it. We all sin every single day. And we all know how to ask God for forgiveness. Thank God for it. Because if, if we were eternally doomed every time that we sin, it would be horrible. We couldn't live out the gospel. But we praise Jesus because every time we fail, we humbly come before him and we tell God, God, I screwed up again. I'm really sorry. Forgive me. I know how to do better, but I, I haven't. I'm really sorry, Lord. Forgive me. 
and help me to, to have peace with everyone around me. Lord, help me to fix this mess that I, I put myself into. Lord, forgive me. It, may, it might seem something that it is so very easy to say, and it might be very easy to say, but it's not something so easy to do. When we humbly come to God and ask for his forgiveness. But this message is everyday disciples, and we want to be very practical. And it's important that as a church we receive the teaching from the word of God and that we know exactly what to do. So what should we do when someone is caught in sin in the church? The Bible says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is, is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We need to seek the repentance and restoration of that Christian to full fellowship with God and to full fellowship with other believers. That is the purpose. We exist as a church and we need to live in holiness and we are accountable to one another. If we see someone sinning, the purpose is not throwing people out of the church. The purpose is not is to look people sideways and think that they are not worthy to be in the gathering of the believers and of the, the holy ones. The purpose is to bring this person to repentance and to restore him. Full communion with God, full communion with other believers. But notice this, there is a warning to those who are spiritual. The Bible is just amazing. God is just amazing in the way that he explains things. He says, this is the purpose, this is what you should do, but you have to be careful. You have to keep watch on yourself. Because when we deal with sin, even if it's other people's sins, we tend to act on our flesh, on our instincts, in our emotions. Maybe we're going to minimize the sin and say it doesn't really matter. And maybe we're going to amplify the sin and say that's the most horrible thing that someone has ever done. When we are not acting to restore this person in spirit of gentleness, we will not be accomplishing what God intended for us to do as the body of Christ. We have to seek the truth and the wisdom that comes from the word of God. So, this is a purpose when we see someone around us sinning. Another hard question. What should we do when someone is caught in sin and does not repent? And let's read in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Jimmy. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witness, witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Thank you. These are words that Jesus said in his ministry, and basically it's a script, it's a guide on how we should deal with sin within the church. And first off, if we see someone in sin, we need to tell him his sin alone. Do not amplify, do not bring other people. Many people say that the best thing that we can do is ignore the sin. But actually, Jesus is not saying that. He says, go to your brother, go to your sister, and explain to him, explain to her 
why her behavior is not correct, why it's not glorifying God, and do it alone. If the person doesn't hear, take some witnesses. Take some people with you. Maybe uh, the help of someone else will, will make him or her realize that he's alone on this. He, her, she's alone on this. She, she cannot see things in that perspective, that what she is doing is actually wrong. And for some reason, which happens, people may still not hear you. People may still not hear us. And the Bible says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, telling to the church is a, a really almost, it's the last resource that we have available. Involve the community in it because that kind of behavior goes against the holiness of God. God wants us to live in unity, and that unity implies, um, implies um, holiness. And if he doesn't hear the church, treat him as an outsider. It doesn't mean that we're going to put that person away. We're going to shun that person. We're not going to speak with her. It simply means that our relationship with that person will necessarily change. Because if this person does not repent, this person will not be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. If this person accepts and embraces the sin uh, he is living with, it means that this person is not enjoying the unity of the body of Christ, this experience that God wants us all to experience. And it's our responsibility every time we are with this person, every time we communicate, we want to bring this person back to God's kingdom. We want to bring this person back to repentance. We do not enjoy seeing someone in sin and receiving the consequences of sin and understanding that this person is no longer part of the body of Christ. They may come to church, but they're not part of the spiritual body of Christ. And that shouldn't hurt our hearts. It pains our hearts to see someone who is resisting what God is trying to do in their life. But this is exactly what we're called to do, and it's not pleasant. Pastors and, and leaders, elders, they love the flock. They're shepherds. They want to see the flock thriving in holiness, seeking God, and being everything that God called us to be. And it's not easy for pastors when it comes to bringing anyone to the church and, and uh Having to deal with someone else's sin, it will never be pleasant for anyone. But the Bible tells this to the pastors. It says in 2 Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, and they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. A pastor is actually constantly disciplining the church. The act of preaching and teaching is discipline, is formative discipline. It, we're, gonna, uh, we're, we're preparing the people to do the work of God and not fall into the trap of sin beforehand. 
But sometimes it's necessary to rebuke. It's corrective discipline. It may not feel like something we want to experience. And if you feel that your leadership is trying to correct you, you feel, who is he to correct me? Who is she to correct me? And we say, oh, but the pastor is also imperfect. Like the pastor never sins. Oh, like the, the leader is a lot older than me and has a lot more experience. Or I'm not going to listen to this guy. He's much younger than me. Who is he to tell me what is God's way for my life? But you know, what is the attitude that glorifies God? The attitude that glorifies God is when we as a community, we honor and we listen to the leaders that God has placed in the church as imperfect as they might be. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them be so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. We are not called to obey the leadership of the church because they're perfect. We're not called to be accountable to leadership because they make us feel good. They make us feel valued all the time. We are called to do so because it glorifies God. Because they are going to give an account of our souls before God. And if their goal is to watch over us, watch over the flock, we will be able to live in unity and in the holiness that God wants us to live as part of the body of Christ. When we accept the standard that God has placed for us regarding holiness. It's not a witch hunt. Church is not about having a witch hunt and find out who is sinning. We're all imperfect. Even your pastor is imperfect. But one thing that we want to do together is always come before God and repent. Lord, I know I messed up. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And when we do that to one another, when we just don't bury something that is harming us, when we receive from the Holy Spirit the capacity to come to Jamil, Jamil, uh, I'm sorry, maybe I'm too sensitive, but when you said this, it offended me. I'm, and Jamil is going to be filled with God and say, I'm really sorry. It wasn't my intention, maybe, but I'm sorry. Forgive me. When we go and, and when we see behavior that offends us, and we should be ready to forgive those who've offended us beforehand. Sometimes it's these smaller aspects of these small conflicts, these small, let's call them small sins, that affect the unity of the body of Christ. In order for us to live in unity, we need holiness. And holiness is in the way that Jesus explained to us. I want to invite the, the worship team to come. And we're going to sing a last song. And um, I'm going to pray for us. And before we end the service, we're going to pray again. But hopefully we will understand as we finish this message series that a gospel-centered, a humble um, heart will always glorify God because it will lead us to unity. Unity glorifies God because it's only possible through the cross 
of Jesus Christ. It glorifies God because it demands from us as one body to die to ourselves and to live a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God. So Riverside, we need to pursue unity. We need to pray for unity. We need to pray that this unity is demonstrating God's glory to the world around us. Let's continue to unfold together what unity is and exactly what unity isn't as well so that we will embrace what God has in store for us. We hope that God has touched your heart with the message that he wants to tell us. If you would like to be updated with the things that are happening in our church, you will follow us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Riverside Lisbon. Thank you for listening.